1: provocative and fun conversations among high profile public figures and regular folks like me. You love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome to Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. I am your host, flanked by my co-host, Ronnie Nathan. How you doing, Pop? Hey, how you doing, Corey? I'm doing good. Good to see you. Good to see you and co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. By the way, if you like the show, please leave us a review, hopefully five stars with some comments on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help in the rankings and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And today we are joined by Michael Farantino. Michael is lead economist for trade policy at the World Bank and prior to joining the bank, he was lead international economist at the U.S. International Trade Commission, where he served from 1994 to 2013. Those are a couple of big jobs, Michael.
2: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, way before that, you know, I
1: delivered newspapers. Oh Well, um, I mean, that, that's a frontline job. That's, uh, you know, frontline worker. <laughs> especially especially in,
2: in Chicagoland, where you had a lot of snow. I also, in the summer of 1976, assembled electronic switches by hand. That was a job that actually existed in the United States in 1976. (laughs)
1: Wow. That's great. Well, you answered one of my first questions because I I remember, uh, well, my first question really is, how are you? Like, first and foremost, these are crazy times. We're in a crazy moment. How are you doing? You know,
2: pretty well. I mean, I've been working out of my basement since March and since I was commuting two hours a day to Washington. It's brought me back four hours. Um, I ought to use more of that time exercising and less eating than i do but the option of taking the the time that i was spending on trains and metros and rolling out of my bed and walking right to my office
1: we noticed uh, on our another podcast that we do that our listenership went down once people's commutes went down (laughs) but once we had a few people commuting to work we started picking listeners back up so not that I want you wasting four hours a day, but, you know, an hour or two here and there to, to listen to a podcast is a good thing. Well, I would normally ask, you know, how you're navigating for, through COVID times, which you told us a little bit about, but you're actually working on solving one of the major domains that have been significantly affected by the pandemic, um, that is understanding and promoting recovery in global trade in the wake of COVID-19. Can you, can you tell us? About this work and give us some context for its real-world implications. Yeah, sure. So there was a substantial drop in international
2: trade um, starting in January, February in China, and then spreading throughout the world. And the drop we saw through May was comparable to what we saw in the financial crisis. And then it's it's bounced back somewhat um, since countries have released their lockdowns. But the issue of keeping goods and services moving in a time when you're simultaneously telling people not to move around for epidemiological reasons is, is very challenging. Like what How do you maintain the customs services under social distancing? How do you make sure that medical supplies move around? How do you encourage countries not to hoard medical supplies or food for that matter, and trade them like they normally would? What happens when you tell people they can't cross county lines and you get like miles and miles of trucks at let's say the border of Kenya and Tanzania with perishable produce in them. And the whole thing comes to a halt because the driver has to wait for his COVID test results. And in the meantime, you've got people running around the local village making more people sick. And what happens when the the passenger flights shut down, And it turns out that in a lot of the poor and middle income countries that we deal with, passenger flights are a main way that goods that come come in and out um, through what's called belly cargo, right? So our idea of air cargo in the United States is that a company like Federal Express has a dedicated fleet of cargo aircraft, okay, in a lot of the world that... Those goods would move inside passenger aircraft. So you shut down the tourism, you shut down trade. And so when I, I deal with other countries, in not necessarily talking about COVID, I'm talking about some other topic in trade. Like I've been talking with Azerbaijan, you know, like how do they diversify away from oil, for example? Well, it turns out that they actually have a lot of fruits and vegetables and nuts. They have hazelnuts, they have strawberries and all these things, and they're anxious to diversify their markets away from Russia. And they were all excited because they were beginning to sell some of these things in the Persian Gulf countries. But the minute the tourism shut down, their transport for the fruits and vegetables shut down, and they're a landlocked country, they don't have a lot of options. Those are the sorts of things that we are actually trying to advise the various countries that are the members of the World Bank, particularly the low and middle income countries that were there to serve as to how to manage these things like the best interests of their populations at home.
1: whole. We're going to talk about the World Bank and understand your role there a little bit more later, but I, I want to back up just for a second I, I've heard you talk about listening to, I remember you talk about listening to Jack Buck, but you said you're from the Chicago area. So so you were getting Jack Buck up from uh, St. Louis? Were you able to get the St. Louis signal? Well,
2: I think what I was talking about, we're talking about baseball is, yeah. is Harry Carey. And Harry Carey originally broadcast for the St. Louis Cardinals.
1: St. Louis, yeah. Well, St. Louis Browns too, actually, wasn't it? It might have been. I yeah, don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah but St. Louis Cardinals for a long time. And then the White Sox.
2: Right. I first heard him with the White Sox with Jimmy Pearsall. And that was crazy because Jimmy Pearsall was a crazy guy. And they had made the mistake of having Jimmy Pearsall work as an outfield coach and be a broadcaster at the same time. (laughs) And you'd hear him on the radio berating these kids during the game, saying, you know, like I told him, you put both of your hands in front of you. You learn this in Little League, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, humiliating these players on live tel- radio.
1: Right. <laughs> That's great.
0: I think something that would be helpful is uh, for the listeners to know that Michael Joseph Ferentino is not only a brilliant economist, he's also Got the richest background in comic book art that I've ever met, as well as an aficionado of baseball.
1: A true so, aficionado. Yeah, I've I've read some of your musings. I was asking by way of of so you're from the Chicago area yeah, yeah, and also totally. to, that we share the, the, the love of baseball, the history of baseball. So that's neat. So you grew up in that area. Oh. Uh, Speaking of baseball, this is a good time, Zenny, to ask you about your inside baseball New York New York Mets story.
2: Oh, see, well, this is a couple levels of inside baseball, and this is where (laughs) this is the part where we get to talk about religion without killing each other.
1: Okay, all right.
2: Okay, so you know, one of the things that happened as a result of COVID is that a lot of activities with large public gatherings shut down. Yeah. Including worship spaces, right? And then when these opened up, not only did the state and local authorities make different instructions, but your 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 local religious authority, your pastor, your priest, your bishop, your rabbi would say, this is how we do it in our place. And part of that would be their prudential judgment. And part of it would have to do with your traditions. So now people know I'm an Episcopalian. I would call myself a traditional Episcopalian. But I have a lot of friends who were Roman Catholics. Both of my sons went to Catholic school. My daughter eventually converted and became a Roman Catholic. So I hang with these people on social media. And when the Catholic Diocese of Virginia opened up again for public worship. When we got to that stage of unwinding, one of the issues is how do you do the Holy communion? How do you do the Eucharist? Okay. Right. Because this is something that if you think about it from an epidemiological standpoint, you have to manage it in a certain way. And so While in most christian traditions we receive the way for the host in the hand right the you know roman catholics are accustomed to receiving it on the tongue Mm. that's the way they've always done it right and if you grew up with that that's meaningful to you but now the instructions they were receiving is yes you can still receive on the tongue but if you do that means that the priest is going to have to use hand sanitizer before serving the next person. And this is going to slow down the line, right? And so I was surrounded on Facebook with these friends of mine, and this is, and this is the inside baseball, the just being in a social media conversation, lurking among a bunch of, a bunch of Catholics saying, well, it's going to be different taking it in the hand, right? I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this. What if I drop it? And really people were frustrated about this. And at some point, like I put up my hand, you know, in a friendly way and said, um, hi, there's an Episcopalian in the room. (laughs) We've been taking it in the hand for years. Nobody drops it. What are you guys, the 1962 Mets? (laughs) And 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 at that point, I mean, I was afraid that I would offend people, but fortunately it had the opposite effect, which is to help people to lighten up and see a humorous side of this part of their religious experience that they were struggling with because of the COVID.
1: I was curious about at what point that the idea of becoming an economist occurred to you. At what point did that occur to you?
2: Well, I think I started to drift in that direction by the time... I was 16, and there were certain things that had influenced me in that direction, because I get asked this a lot. One of the things, believe it or not, was watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, because one of the features of that show was that he would do factory visits where you would learn how things were made, okay? You know, like, we're going to see how crayons are made, we're going to see how pretzels are made, and if you find yourself, like, in the branch of economics, which is called industrial organization or studying technology, you develop a curiosity about these things. Um, The other, and I've heard this from other colleagues of mine, was we ended up reading a series of science fiction novels by Isaac Asimov called The Foundation Trilogy, in which he's got a galactic empire like Star Wars and he posits a science of predicting and influencing mass behavior, which he calls psychohistory. And psychohistory kind of looks like economics, only it's obvious that Asimov doesn't know much about economics. And then the third thing, which again would have been when I was about 12 or so, and I can date this August 15th, 1971. (laughs) I I remember coming home from school. This is junior high, and there are supposed to be like afternoon cartoons, yeah, right? And these were preempted by Richard Nixon, who announced that the United States was going off the gold standard and that there would be 90 days of wage and price controls. And a couple of other things which sounded very dramatic to me as a pre-teenager, and I was sort of staring at this TV broadcast and not actually thinking, You know, like, why, why can't I see Gigantor or Tobor the Eighth Man right now? But (laughs) gosh, this sounds important. I wonder what the heck he's talking about.
1: Right, right. You mentioned Mr. Rogers neighbor. I'm, I'm picturing five year old Michael sitting in a circle at summer camp with one of those. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a ballerina. I want to be a fireman. I want to be an economist.
2: No, no, no. <laughs> at, no. At five, I wanted to be a paleontologist. <laughs> I was. No. Well, I that was sort of makes of sense. Kids like, 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 like millions of kids that are fascinated with
1: dinosaurs. Yeah, dinosaurs. And Like,
2: why can't that be your job? Right.
1: So what does one study undergrad that you could go off and you went to Yale for your PhD in economics, what does one study undergrad to prep for that graduate work?
2: Well, the recommended way to do it would be you take a good program in economics with a lot of math that you learn statistics and what's called econometrics, which is the application of statistics to Economics, and you take as much math as you can. Um, And today they would say that multivariate calculus, linear algebra would be the minimum differential equations, real analysis. I somehow got into Yale with a good deal less math than that and ended up doing a senior thesis in history of economic thought, which was for all
0: practical purposes, like literature, mm. right? Is that the kind of thing that you studied, Dad? No. When I was in college, um, I, took a, I took a year's seminar with a very famous economic historian, a guy named Raymond DeRolva. And I learned two things that were critical in, in, in my development. One was that Jews played a very, very significant role in the early medieval economy, when Europe was basically closed down and North Africa and the, south, the tier of the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean under the Roman Empire was a unifying factor. Suddenly, the Mediterranean became kind of like a lead wall between the Muslim world and the Christian world, and Jews played a very significant role because they had this network, a commercial network, where they maintained international trade. And also because we couldn't own land for the most part in Europe, we gravitated toward mercantile kind of activities. And Raymond Rover also said to me, if you're going to go to grad school for history, which was my, which I was going to do, the early middle Ages is a very good time to specialize in because there's very few primary sources. So you could have your entire library on one bookshelf. And that sounded kind of good to me. So uh, I gravitate... Those two interests, being Jewish, being interested in Jews, and not having a lot of primary sources were the hooks that got me interested in medieval, early medieval economic history. So naturally, I became the high school guidance counselor.
1: So, of course. I'm curious.
2: I'm not sure I answered your last question. Ronnie had asked about my political arc, how I became
1: radicalized, oh. and how I became conservative later. Oh, I've diverted the subject.
2: No, so... I think when I went to college, I heard the Democrats talking more about the environment, about education. You know, I've been raised to be a bird watcher. And then when I went to Sussex, it was all various shades of Marxism. That was the menu. So I was pretty much marinated in that. I still speak fluent Marxist, (laughs) you know, which comes in handy because if you just speak it with an odd accent, that means that you can speak basic woke, which is more... um, which is more useful these days. But I I think what happened was it was a combination of teaching undergraduate economics to hundreds of students every semester and internalizing things I was learning about markets and prices, and then also being married and having a family. And by about age 35, I would say I had concluded that there were certain things that I'd always been interested in. Like I always thought that it was important to do something about poverty, but my ideas about what worked and what didn't work in terms of doing something about poverty had changed. And my, you know, my explanations for why people were poor and rich, like needed to become richer just to say that people were on opposite sides of a class struggle wasn't explaining enough of the world to me, you know? And, you know, I also saw, that there were a lot of practical problems in economics for which Marxism doesn't take you very far. So like what is the Marxist approach to COVID or setting load limits for trucks on highways? And you say, yeah, no, no, that there's a lot more going on in the world
1: than that. Okay. There's a lot of uh, jargon in whether it's online or political campaigns and the word Marxism gets thrown around a lot, which I tend to find rather unhelpful. In fact, uh, my kids went to a school when uh, Obama was president. That's a Christian classical education focus. And they brought in speaker after speaker. A lot of them were conservatives, uh, Hugh Hewitt and people like that, which it's their prerogative to bring that, you know, folks like that in. Um, One speaker in particular, and my dad and I almost got beat up that night by a gang of rabid, (laughs) whatever's, Um, but she was speaking on, her upbringing in a uh, socialist communist country. I think it was Poland. What was it, Dad? I think it was Poland. And her talk was understanding who Obama is through the lens of understanding what Marxism is. Mm -hmm. So I asked a question there about, like, what are we doing? Are we classical Christian education? Are we like, you know, is this CPAC? Like, where are we right now? Um, But I've always found that kind of language to be rather unhelpful because it's a misunderstanding of what actual Marxism is. And it's a mischaracterization of what politicians like contemporary American Democrats, not Democratic Socialists in particular, but, you know, the center of left common Democrats. I'm curious as to your your thoughts on that. If if I'm off base, if maybe I'm not if I'm too much of an apologist for for the Democratic Party of today or. okay, well, well, okay, well, let me
2: start at the beginning which the with the terminology and of course marxism can be one of these words like fascism you know it's meaning becomes blurred to the point of just denotes things i don't like such as my fascist mother made me clean my room right (laughs) um
1: but yeah but to My Marxist father wants me to share with my brother. (laughs) No, right, right. So, so, so
2: when I took my first course at this at Sussex, it was Marxian economics. And so I begin in the first place with a, a distinction between Marxian and Marxist. Marxian economics is the economics of Karl Marx. And it means that you need to have read not just the manifesto, but Capital and you know, a great deal of yeah everything in the Marx Engels Reader right, and that Marxist economics was everything that came after Marx. So there'd be you know Kautsky, Bernstein, Rosa Luxemburg, all of that stuff. Yeah, there's actually a question uh, that that came up I think in Point Counterpoint where somebody had asked about what socialism is. About.
0: Hannah, that's his daughter yeah
2: right, yes
0: my granddaughter and so
2: I think there's there's a distinction between Marxian or marxist economics or sociology or whatever as an explanation of how the world works as a theory and how one categorizes economic policies and I think in the context of the United States there is you know or of you know, Europe or a lot of places, there is a useful and lively distinction between policies that are based on letting markets and prices make certain decisions and reserving a set of decisions to the government and policies that presumptively say that then there's a problem that government can regulate it to make it better. And because there are all these historical and current cases where the role of government is very, very heavy, then I think it's possible to use language to blur things along this continuum. So so to say that the types of uses of government that you find in a lot of the high-income countries or the OECD are the same as Cuba's Castro, you know, Castro's Cuba, I should say, or Chavez's Venezuela, that isn't the case. You know, nevertheless, I I think personally as a matter of education, if young people have the chance to be exposed to somebody who lived in Eastern Europe before the fall of the Berlin Wall and to hear what their experiences of life were, I actually think that that is good for people to hear because it's, 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 it's so different.
0: Yeah. The other side of the coin, Michael, we haven't, we've had this 20 or 30 year debate in America about the role of government in healthcare and making it accessible to everybody or not making it accessible to everybody. And when I get into these conversations and we've had it on PCP, on Facebook, uh, Oh, a public option. That's socialism. You want to socialize med to me. That's using a term as a weapon without giving me a rationale why that weapon is terrible. It seems to me that the way to approach the conversation is, let's you and I agree on the goal. If we don't, if you and I did, don't agree that everyone should have access to quality health care, then there's really no reason for us to have a conversation. But once we agree to that as a goal, then the criteria should be, What's going to deliver that in the most efficient way possible and the least costly way possible? Not, oh, it's socialism, so we're going to throw it out because we'll become Castro's Cuba if if we have a public option.
2: We're not, I think, yet as bad off with socialism as we are with fascism as a term. But I think, I mean, it's still... It's still, I think, possible for reasonable people to say, if you're going to call something fascist, then explain to me how it's similar to either Mussolini or German national socialism or else shut up, okay? Yeah, I I would think in in a discussion of something like healthcare policy is that the language to the extent that it's emotional can get in the way of the analytics, right? And so I would think a useful discussion, tell me how this works, tell me how it's funded, how it's administered, how a decision is made, and then let's work out the consequences of that and and see if you like the consequences. And that, that immediately makes the discussion a lot more boring because you don't get to elide out of the important parts with labels. But I, I think talking about things in, in that way can clarify a lot. So where do you stand on healthcare? You know, I don't take enough personal responsibility for my own. Um, <laughs> I am, I am an international trade specialist. I'm not a health, a like a health economic specialist is a whole another thing, you know? And so I reflect on how do I use healthcare services? What are my personal practices? One of the things about being an economist is that people sometimes assume that you have mastery of this whole range of topics that economists work on. Like, is this a good time for me to refinance my mortgage? <laughs> right. Which is something like saying, like, you're a physicist. Can you fix the leak in my toilet? <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> well, since we're talking about um, so- sort of current events, uh, this is this isn't to, to your, you know, at me asking you as a professional. This is just me asking you as my my pal from, uh, you know, from Facebook. Um, sure. So this is being recorded on Thursday afternoon, Thursday the 5th. And by the time this conversation is published, we'll have more certainty about the results in the election that that we do now or maybe not. Um, but at this stage, the election returns. What takeaways? And this is for you, too, Pop. What takeaways do each of you have about where we are? Are there any 30,000 foot view observations about what these results mean to the extent that we have results or a decent sense of how things are going to turn out?
2: To me, what's fascinating about this is the national civics lesson. Oh, yeah. Even the even sort of the global civics lesson. I am not panicking because I see the Constitution and the laws like working their slow way and a a result will come out and one hopes that if all of the correct steps in the process
1: are followed, the result will have legitimacy. Yeah. Watching this all unfold certainly is a great civics lesson. You know, we're, we're being reminded of our geography in different districts and towns within each of these states and how each state has Uh, unique election laws, you know, how the process does work, that it's not one national election per se, but all these separate ones run by the states and, and even localities. So, um, but pop, I'm not letting you off the hook. Um, Any, any 30,000 foot view takeaways of where we stand right now and what this says about who we are and where we're going.
0: Yeah. I think this is a, um, a crunch moment in American political culture. I mean, if we get through this thing without violence, that'll say a lot about the strength of our institutions. The other thing, look, I'm very anti-Trump. I think he's a despicable human being, but I get the sense, and either one of you can correct me if I'm wrong, that McConnell being reelected and the Republicans keeping the Senate, but Trump being voted out of office is like a sigh of relief for everybody, even Trump supporters. And if they're not sighing with relief now, I think it's six months, everybody will be sighing with, you know, we'll, we'll be happy that this, this four-year drama and reality show is finally over and we can get down to business, even if that business is governmental dysfunction. That's my 30,000 foot view.
1: I, I have a similar one. Uh, and we talked a little bit about it before we started recording. And that is. The center holds that that used to be the default equilibrium. The center holds, but it really hasn't been for various reasons for quite some time. The loudest voices in the room and those who are dominating the conversation. Let me back up. So, for example, the Republican nominee in 2008 was John McCain, someone who was able to work and collaborate with people in his own party to the extent that he got the nomination, as well as historically uh, friends from across the aisle. Same thing with Mitt Romney, his, his record in politics up to that point was being a a Republican governor in a highly, highly democratic state of Massachusetts um, and passing legislation.
0: Let's just remind everybody that once upon a time, Obamacare was really Romney care.
1: Yeah. And yet because, the loudest voices in the room were the most extreme politically guys like McCain and Romney were forced to run on a much more extreme platform, at least in the primaries than what was true to their record up to that point. And, and then even in the way that many of us talk to each other, you know, a lot of folks who might have moderate views or might have a little bit of um conservative views on one issue or progressive views on another issue. um, Many of those folks are sort of crowded out of the conversation because unless you're throwing rocks, you're just, you're in, you're in harm's way. So I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into what's happening right now, but if you end up with a relatively left of center Democrat in the white house, a pragmatist of a Republican leading the Senate and a Republican held Senate, albeit by one or two seats, and a very experienced leader of a Democratic-held House, one that's lost a few seats, I'm, I'm guessing. That's the direction that things are going. Uh, but if she's good at anything, she's good at holding a very diverse and broad coalition together in her, in her chamber. I think that, that tells me that the center holds. Uh, because these leaders in the House, the Senate, and the executive branch are very different. But we have epic problems right now historic problems right now that need to be addressed right now people are dying and they'll have to figure out a way to work to work with each other for me that would be that would be a relief Uh, a little bit less reality show drama um, a little bit more pragmatism even i know mcconnell's not everybody's cup of tea but uh, i'll take a pragmatist over a rock thrower um you know, especially with him and Biden having been longtime colleagues. I'm maybe I'm being naive, but I'm hopeful that that perhaps they'll uh, remember how to work together. So how did you ultimately land at your current job at the World Bank? I was
2: blessed I got a cold call, okay. I mean, when I was in grad school, I think it was an ambition that a lot of people had. They came recruiting on the campus. I have a suit that I bought for my World Bank interview for the Young Professionals program. It's like three sizes too small. It's in the back of my closet now if I <laughs> haven't given it to Goodwill. And I didn't know anything at that point. And people tried to comfort me by saying, you know, they don't hire many Americans anyway. And I said, well, so how does one get that job? And they go, Well, go and make a career for yourself for 20, 25 years, get good at it and then approach them again. Um, that's how an American does it. And I'm like, well, that's not likely to happen. So when, one day in 2013, I got a cold call uh, you know, saying like, we need a lead economist in our unit and we're not satisfied with our applicant pool. And so when people come to me, and this is the number one question I get, is how do you break into the World Bank? I get so many unsolicited resumes. And when we were actually going into the office, it's like, if I can just spend 30, 30 minutes of your time for an informational interview, like I'll buy you coffee, whatever. Now I know what is the secret to get to the World Bank? And I, I honestly don't have the slightest idea. You might consider that um, there are actually a lot of other nice places to work. We have a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of irritation. Um, one of the older economists told me when I came aboard, that the World Bank isn't as good as it looks like from the outside, but it's not as bad as it looks like from the inside. <laughs> and this is, you know, and this has kind of been my motto
1: since then. Yeah. Yeah. You've had a, a really good run there as well. Uh, after 20 years at your prior job, what you do vocationally, now, especially now that we're talking about, it does seem linked to your worldview philosophically, ethically, even theologically, or, or am I reading too much into that?
2: I don't think you are. I mean, I think I'm, I'm glad that at this point I'm working for an organization whose stated goal is to eliminate extreme poverty and to promote shared prosperity everywhere in the world. Um, I want, you know, I once made the mistake of, um, I was, on a a tour of some some shrines devoted to the Virgin Mary in Maryland with my daughter and her priest at the time. And I made the mistake of saying that the World Bank was the largest poverty-fighting institution in the world to a Catholic priest, at which point he kind of lifted his eyebrows and said, (laughs) oh, really? Um, (laughs) But yeah, but see, the thing is that we get a lot of jobs that the link to doing good is not as obvious so when i was at the us international trade commission there was an interdenominational christian fellowship there there was a um, a bible study and during as a result of a series of introductions there was uh, uh we ended up playing house or i ended up playing house to a group of students from a nazarene college in illinois who were on a tour like finding out what, what christians are doing in government and i was asked this question so how do you be a christian economist in a context where they're doing these like technical things having to do with u.s trade policy and my answer to that was always you be a good and a competent and an honest economist or whatever it is you do. And I, um, yeah, share, I like to share in this connection, um, a story that Dorothy Sayers told, um, Dorothy Sayers, um, was both a, um, a mystery novelist and a playwright and a Christian apologist. She had a career, that looked kind of like C.S. Lewis. She she would Uh, have been
1: an inkling if she was a man. Exactly so,
2: right? Yeah. Um, And she wrote this play called Zeal for Thy House, which was an attempt to put certain theological concepts on the stage. And part of this was that there there were a series of angels costumed in angel wings, and they didn't have any dialogue in the play. But, you know, occasionally they'd lift their arms and put them down and the wings would sort of go in a kind of dramatic fashion. And somebody came up to Dorothy Sayers after the performance and said, the men playing these angels must have been unusually pious because they had such an effect on me. And Dorothy Sayers said, let me tell you what, okay? What we need in an angel like this is somebody who shows up on time for rehearsal, who is the height and weight that they want, and who learns their lines. And in terms of moral qualities, the main thing is that they not show up drunk and that they be able to focus. And once we've got after all that, we can deal with any other moral qualities, which is to say that to put on good Christian theater meant to put on good theater per se. And then she went on this rap about how much damage had been done to the gospel by pious people putting on plays and movies that were crappy plays and movies.
1: <laughs> oh my. Well, if she had uh, seen the last 20, 25 years of quote unquote Christian movies, Oh boy. She, she'd be uh not just rolling over in her grave. She she'd be she well, she'd be decomposing in her grave. Let's <laughs> Is that grandma or dad? Is that who you're looking at?
0: Phyllis, come in for a second.
1: Let her say hello. A
0: I got I think I have to go. I okay, think great. I have to go because it's late
1: and I have to eat supper. Understood. Give us uh hi ma, how you doing?
0: I'm gonna eat supper. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah, you know
1: what about the supper with
0: me? No. It's too late. It's too late. This, hi, this is
1: This is Phyllis. This is Phyllis.
0: This is Phyllis, who are
2: you? Hey, I'm fine. I'm Michael Ferentino.
0: Oh, hi Michael Ferentino. I love you. Oh,
1: you're so sweet. <laughs> Mom. Sorry. Mom, you can't give us five minutes to uh we're we're almost done. No. Okay,
0: you can have as long
2: as you want, I'm
1: eating supper. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> you take care. All right, <laughs> I okay. Well, you know, this the studio is <laughs> closed, we got to eat supper. No, I get that totally. <laughs> um, no, no, well, they're in New York and I'm in California, so I don't, uh, I'm not quite ready for supper. Um, and uh. Yeah. D- but dad, if you, if you got to go, I mean, you, you know, listen, we can, we can, we can wrap it up from here. I know you well, had a no, few yeah, questions, but they
0: just told me that I don't have to go.
1: Okay. I was, was oh. going to take
0: her out to eat tonight. But I didn't realize how late this was.
1: What, what time? It's six forty-five by me. Oh yeah. That's right. You're old. You, you missed the senior special at, you know, golden star diner somewhere on route 71.
0: It's called being hungry and going to sleep at 10 o'clock at night.
1: <laughs> okay, You know, all right. I, I forgot exactly where where we were, but uh, um, well, listen, you're, you're, you're speaking my language because um, I, I ran a, uh, it was a basically a production company we did. Um, and, but it was a, uh, it was part ministry, part production company called Epiphany Productions or P- Epiphany Collaborations that started right after 9-11. I was a brand new Christian and the uh, worship pastor at our church found out about my background in the New York theater and asked me to take the reins of this thing. And, um, we did a couple of years of just training. Uh, I said, I, I, listen, cause I, I was familiar with some of the awful, awful writing, awful production, awful acting. It was just, it was sinful <laughs> for lack of a better word. So we did a year's worth of, of training. Um, and I come from part, part method background, part classical training, um, and then we did a year's worth of just scene study, uh, and I couldn't believe this um, ensemble. Uh, some and weren't Southern California, so some of these folks had long professional resumes, but they found it worthwhile for us to develop a common artistic language. Um, and then our ensemble did plays. We we did Shakespeare. Our first full-length play was uh, the Cherry Orchard, the Chekhov piece. Oh wow! We did um, Tartuffe. We a great translation of Tartuffe. Uh, we did a Woman of No Importance, uh, the the um, Wild Play. Uh, we we did we did some good stuff. I'm I'm really proud of that. Uh, but what we did, it it sounds like a little bit what you had described is we would do plays sometimes at our church and sometimes down in Hollywood. We'd rent a space down in Hollywood, and then we'd hold these panel discussions, and often just start with a basic question: Why would a bunch of born again Bible thumping Christians want to do an Oscar Wilde play in West Hollywood, California? And then we'd engage in these conversations, you know, Ravi Zacharias had the catchphrase for a long time, engaging today's culture in conversations that count. So for us, it was just a way to engage in meaningful conversations with our, our community, so.
0: What I have found, and what I'd like to bounce off Michael, as a Jew, and as a Jew who knows something about history, I find Christian dramatizations and interpretations of the Gospels are incredibly historically ignorant, particularly when it comes to who the Pharisees were.
1: I almost got kicked out of my church over this one. My, my dad and I happen to agree about this.
0: And the thing that, that is most painful to a Jew is that this misinterpretation and ignorance has formed the ideological foundation for anti-Semitism for 2,000 years.
1: You have to be more specific, Dad.
0: Well, let's see if Michael knows what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. Right. So, I think there are a couple of things. One thing which has happened
2: for a number of reasons is that the... It probably says in the dictionary that one of the definitions of Pharisee is hypocrite. And that's what a lot of people would carry in their heads, right? And... And that's wrong. Well, right. So, so if you're studying the Gospels properly, okay, you ought to begin from the standpoint that Jesus was a Jew. He was an observant Jew. And that the Hebrew scriptures were his Bible, right? And that he was surrounded by a lot of other Jews that had different worldviews and made different types of claims and that the Pharisees in many ways were people who were, were receptive to you know, trying to live a holy life to loving your neighbor as yourself. And that Jesus was in dialogue with a lot of the
0: Pharisees. Jesus was a Pharisee. Well, in my, when I read the gospels, it was very it's very clear to a Jew who knows anything about Rabbi Hillel, yeah, and the two school and the two Pharisaic schools that Jesus was a Pharisee who followed Hillel and he was engaged in the very conversations that the followers of Shammai and Hillel
1: were debating. By his language, I think you can make that you can make that conclusion, but it's still a hypothesis. Michael, are you familiar with John Howard Yoder? He he's a a scholar, uh, I think he taught at Notre Dame, not too far from your old neck of the woods. Wow. Um, I'm I, I'm, not, but I think our um, our listeners should know
2: that this is actually not the first time that Ryan and I have discussed Jesus and Pharisees.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, I, I bring up Yoder because he has this collection of essays called The Jewish Christian Schism Revisited. And dad, did you read that collection? Because he explores this in great depth and he came to Not exactly the same conclusion, but he definitely, he goes, it's this one essay where he goes through an imaginary exercise. If Jesus were to identify most closely with any number of the groups uh, of that time of first century Israel um, or Palestine or however you want to refer to it, would he have identified most closely with the Essenes, with the Zealots, with the Pharisees, with the, you know, and he comes to the conclusion that it would have been the Pharisees.
0: It's obviously the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees were the ones who were concerned with the poor and the needy and the common people, and most of those Pharisaic rabbis came from that background. They weren't involved in violence, and they weren't part – I mean, they were part part of the establishment to the extent that they served on the Sanhedrin, but their foils were the Sadducees, the people who – You know, we're in charge of the temple and we're corrupt.
2: Right. Yeah. If one frames the question in that way, if one has to place Jesus among the four or five options of being a second temple Jew, a lot of times he sounds like a Pharisee, not always. For example, my understanding is on the question of divorce. He sounds more like Shemai than like Yilal. He's not an easy divorce guy, and this is like one of one of the topics in which he finds himself in public debate with people. Um, but then, then of course, as as a Christian, my perspective would be that Jesus was a party of one because he claimed to have personal authority because of the intimate relationship that he claimed to have with the father, that his views of righteousness and his interpretations of the law, you know, were not constrained to be those of any particular party. And so at one point or another, he finds himself in conflict with everybody and his conflicts with The Pharisees, perhaps, are most strange just because they're so close on a lot of things. He can have dinner with Pharisees. There are a couple of them in the tradition. I mean, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who, at least in our tradition, we say are are secret Christians. And it's it's something like, you know, actually, we were talking about Marxism before, right? You know, like, you get... um, you can have you can have arguments between Marxists and capitalists, but they're nothing like the arguments between the socialist workers and and some other faction of Marxists. Right. So, so part of the tension, I think, may be from being close on a lot of things. But there was this unbreakable point, which is that, you know, I know you heard somebody say this, but I say that. Right. Which is which is which which was not the way. I understood that rabbinic debate would usually go. It would be, you refer to an authority, right? And yeah, and saying, I am the authority is not
0: the way the game is played. In Jewish popo, you know, debate, orthodox debate, there always has to be an authority, either the Torah or the rest of the Hebrew Bible or some sage who interpreted it. But the key point, what's what was the attitude of the Hillelian Pharisees to Jesus's claims, their reaction was, let's wait and see what happens. Yeah, you're, you're thinking <laughs> that- uh, If it plays out the way Jesus says it will, then he's right. If it doesn't, he's wrong.
1: W- what was the name of the character uh, early in Acts when Peter- Gamaliel. G- g- yeah, yeah,
0: and he was the grandson of Hillel.
1: Right, right.
0: Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel,
1: a Pharisee. He's a fascinating character to me because he, he was still alive long He was alive long enough to have seen that this this little band of followers of Jesus didn't go away. In, in fact, uh, many of them went to their death still proclaiming the messiahship of Jesus. So I'm curious if if he was still especially if he was still around after the destruction of the second temple, um, what he might have been saying about that little band of Jesus followers and, you know, if, if he remembered what he said that was recorded in acts um, that, that he's, he's a fascinating character to me. Well, we have been going very long. My father has to go to bed or eat or something that old people do. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have, I'll let my dad, do you have any questions? Cause I, we kind of skimmed through a bunch of stuff. Pop, did you have any last questions?
0: Well, I mean, I find it interesting that Michael is constrained in terms of expressing strong opinions because of the work he does. Uh, so I don't want to make him uncomfortable. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I really don't. The question that came to my mind as you were talking about saints is, uh, is being an Episcopalian uh, a conscious choice for you? Or is it because you were raised that way? Because or... when I read your life of the saints, originally I thought you were an Orthodox, you know, an Eastern Orthodox Christian. Oh. That's cool. Yeah, I was surprised to find out that you were like a mainline Christian in America. You know, you're Episcopalian, that's what. So i to give you my short answer.
2: So I was baptized Lutheran, which is not that different from Anglican, right? And then due to some experiences my father had, I was more or less raised in, um, in a full gospel tradition, which is like a charismatic Pentecostal tradition. And I rebelled against the way I was raised when I was a teenager. And, you know, I spent time among the Quakers, but, you know, in myself, I like to call this my Buddhism, Marxism and drugs period. which is <laughs> To say that I was making things up as I went along. And you're trying to make a bunch of really inconsistent worldviews fit together. And but the only thing they had in common was a way of my saying that I thought my father was stupid and wrong about everything, which by the time I was age 30, I understood better. Um, So I was in grad school at Yale when I fell among an interdenominational group of Christians that were having Bible studies together. And I made an adult commitment to Christ at the age of 25.
1: And it happened that a lot
2: of those people were going to an Episcopal church, and it was something that I was attracted to because there were a lot of questions that I didn't feel comfortable asking in the full gospel tradition. Like, it, it was the safe place to ask questions like, you know, where, like, where did the canon of scripture come from? What should I think about evolution? All this sort of thing, right? And so it just sort of fit. I got married in the Episcopal church. Um, I was eventually... Confirmed in the Episcopal Church, and although the American Church has gone through like a lot of changes, I've become, um, if you're old enough to remember the cigarette ads, I would call myself a chariot in Episcopalian. I'd rather fight than switch.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. So Episcopalian, I don't know all the different denominations, but it's the American extension of the Church of England. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. It was
2: the church that, and the the, start. That, that, that most people who wanted religious freedom were running from. It's the church, which is implicitly mentioned in the First Amendment to the Constitution. Congress shall make no establishment of yeah. religion. Yeah. say so you can't have anything like the Church of England. Oddly enough, it was the established church in Virginia. Oh. Uh, where I live. And, and I happen to worship in a colonial building, which was actually paid for by taxpayer money.
1: <laughs> How if you about can believe
2: that. that.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I'll, I'll let you ask the last question. Uh, if you want to ask any question you like of either me or Ronnie, uh, the floor is yours.
2: Okay. Um, so, so Corey, let me ask you um, about, yeah, like, it It came to your mind to do this podcast, and I understand that you do um, a couple of other podcasts, which I haven't really had a chance to sample. But um, that can, I wonder if you could talk a bit about what you see as the role of a, Christian in a media culture, you don't, you don't find yourself drawn to preach or to like sing three chord praise songs, but to
1: do like a podcast about golf.
2: (laughs) What what, what is, what is, what is, what is that all about?
1: Right. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, The, the projects that I'm involved, I'll give you a personal answer. Then I'll give you a more theologically rooted answer. The projects that I'm involved in now are most simply... I read this book that you're familiar with or probably read, um, Ray Dalio's book, Principles. And one of the principles or two of the principles uh, of his company is that they're engaged in meaningful work and are, are committed to meaningful relationships, to doing it in the context of you know, people that they, with whom they have meaningful relationships. So all the projects that I'm involved in have those two elements. Uh, I want to be spending my days doing meaningful work, having meaningful conversations with people with whom I'd want to have a meaningful relationship from a theological standpoint. You can look at this from the Jewish lens or the Christian lens but I think it still holds together whether you include the Hebrew Bible or also include the new Testament. And that is uh, there's a, um, there's a, there's a virus in the hardwiring of the, the creation and uh, you know, it, it's broken. Sin entered the world. And I think we see a lot of the evidence of that uh, whether we look in culture or politics or anywhere you look. And sometimes, sometimes the problem is more heightened than others. It's more obvious than others. So when I look around at our culture, I'm troubled by the fact that many of us can't even seem to have civil conversations with each other about very, very important issues. So I, I think if we're simply able to hop on a zoom with people that we don't agree on everything. In fact, some things we passionately disagree about, whether it's who we want to win the world series or which denomination of Christianity or which religion or positions on different political issues. And if we can have a intelligent edifying conversation, then I I think I, I can't, I can't heal the world. That's, that's, that's God's project but i can participate in god's project if by no other reason by no other way than having an edifying enriching conversation with someone who if we only met and and spoke over one issue we might look like adversaries now i'm not necessarily describing you but that that's the general objective that, that i'm I I striving for jump in for a second what? huh
0: can i jump in for a second yeah Corey's conversion to Christianity was a major issue in both of our lives. And it's not only responsible for the projects that Corey's involved in, it changed my life as well, you know? And I think both of us came to the conclusion after two or three or four years of engaging each other in sometimes very heated conversations that the way we were communicating and mediating our differences and learning to accept each other with those differences, I think changed both of us. And I think that's what I'm seeing in Corey and how he's approaching the work he's doing now. It certainly affects me.
1: I think we got along much better once you came to the realization that I was mostly right. (laughs) 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 I I don't know, I'm I'm joking around, but I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what came to mind, Michael.
2: That's cool no no and, and 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 I've
1: actually
2: been blessed by having the um dialogue with both of you and people people know you at a um and at, 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 at a distance like I you i um like I have a daughter who converted to um Roman Catholicism, and one of the things she knows is that um, Ronnie just before Shabbat is in the habit of, um, of sharing a Jewish joke with us and they're never bad jokes. And many of them actually like turn readily into Catholic or Anglican jokes. If you, if you just change the participants a little bit. Yeah.
1: Well, (laughs) you know, what they say is the Jews invented, may have invented guilt. The Catholics perfected it though. (laughs) Right.
2: Right. (laughs) <laughs> right, right, and right. And, and, and the Anglicans came up with a product that has all of the pageantry and none of the gills. Um,
1: <laughs> That's great. Well, on that note, uh, I think we can sign off. Yeah, I, I just I I just really appreciate you taking the time, Michael. I definitely got more than I bargained for.
2: Well, thanks. Thanks.
1: Thanks. This is this. This has been a blast. Really appreciate it. And dad, I, I feel honored that you would uh, skip skip your dinner. And uh, Dis Grandma, that's that's a pretty epic uh, choice that you made. I, I feel honored that you do that for us.
0: Well, I mean, she was already angry when she got up here. <laughs> so, you
1: know. <laughs> uh, she, she, well, I, I don't have to see her for another couple of weeks. You guys so are coming I gotta here. I've got
0: to say, oh, if I stay a little longer, she's going to get angry. She's already angry. <laughs> so I might as well uh, do the crime. <laughs> Yes.
2: You know, this is, you know, you know, know, Martin Luther reportedly said, if you sin, sin boldly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if 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 it reaches the the level of a sin, but it certainly reaches the level of something that I have to make better. When I go down. There you go. There you go.
1: Yeah. Anyway, Michael,
0: um, just, just, uh, if nothing else, BP has been a blessing in my life because it's, uh, Responsible for me meeting you. Uh, Oh, that—that's very kind. I want to thank you you for your friendship, your intellect, and um, I learn a lot from you every time we interact. Good
2: stuff. And thank you so much, and and thank Phyllis for sparing you this long.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Okay, Have a good night. All right. Thank you. Thanks,
1: fellas. Roger out. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here. Please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.